listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, I, I have to tell you, all day long, I have been stuck in an indecision loop on how to open this podcast. <laughs> what? It's a painful one. And I've come Isn't that up how with, you go through life? That's how I go through life. I have a, a daily indecision loop. So it's my indecision loop. I have three options. Option one, status quo. I can just come up with a quippy joke, you know, about how who finds our guests, how we find them, something along those lines. Maybe maybe take a pot shot at the Wolverine, something like that. Option one. Option two is kind of an alternate version of the status quo, where I sort of just jump right in and introduce the guest without like really anything more. Option three, I like the best. I can just do nothing. I can just choose not to decide. I can just sit here and have dead radio silence and see what happens. What do you think? Which which what option should I choose? Well, I, I would prefer the radio silence and just let me take over. <laughs> <laughs> Some listeners might as well. So, I, the good news is that we are in luck. So today, our guest is actually an expert in indecision. So, Matt, can you help me with my dilemma? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, we're going to be talking about the, the new book, which is all about why, why customers do the crazy things they do. The most crazy of which is to engage with us and then ghost us and disengage and, you know, end up lost to no decision. Though if you buy the book and you check it out, you'll notice the very, fir- very early on, there's a dedication to my wife and kids who find it deeply ironic that I wrote a book on how to overcome indecision. <laughs> they think I'm the most indecisive person on earth. So, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm the guy you should be asking. On my front, I have the same thing for breakfast almost every single day. Yeah. Status quo. Oh, yeah. Easy you know, decision. Yeah. There Easy you go. Decision. All right. So our guest is Matt Dixon. Matt is the co-author of three, soon to be four, best-selling business books, The Challenger Sale, The Effortless Experience, and The Challenger Customer. In September of 2022, he co-authored the book, The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision. So he is the co-founder of DCM Insights, and today he is here to talk with us about indecision. And by the end of this podcast, I'm going to have the perfect intro, and I'll re-edit that whole intro. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Happy to help. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's, I'm sure that was the most important thing on your agenda for the night, right? Yeah. So Matt, I told you I was going to do my best to jump right in and I'm going to cut right to the chase. Right. You know, in one of the videos you have online, you basically just lay it out there. You say 40 to 60% of deals are lost to no decision. Is that true? And what does that mean? Yeah, it is. And it's pretty troubling. I've been accused of, and when I present this material, starting the presentation in a pretty depressing spot. And that is the spot we start, which is, look, we've all got to take stock. And you know, look, whether you're a salesperson selling in, in B2B, whether you're a commercial leader and consumer and you're selling you know, products to consumers or you're, you're a partner in a professional services firm and you're selling your own services and expertise to clients, you've got to understand that 40 to 60% of those opportunities you pursue. And we're not talking about opportunities that you get handed. We're talking about qualified opportunities and, and oftentimes opportunities where the client says, I want to move forward with you, will end up ending up in no decision land. The client will disengage you. They'll disengage from the process. They'll ghost you. They'll go radio silent. 
as I often say, reminds me of my dating life in college where the relationship was actually over. It just took me a while to figure out <laughs> it was over. And so, but in, you know, eventually we'll, somebody will tell us, will you stop chasing that garbage truck that, you know, that opportunity is never going to come to fruition. Go spend your time elsewhere. If we think about that at an individual level, how costly that can be for us individually. And that if you're a leader of an organization, think about that multiplied across all of your partners, across all of your salespeople. It is a massive, massive deadweight loss for a commercial organization for a firm. And what we found is you mentioned it was about 40 to 60%. I'll put a finer point on that. There is a range there and there's a specific reason for the range. What we found is that in more transactional purchases, so think about product-based purchases, low dollar value, pretty easy decisions, toner cartridges for the printer, for instance, those the no decision loss rate is actually higher uh, there. And the reason is that there's more window shopping and tire kicking when there's a low investment required of the customer. Now, in a complex purchase, so think about a you know, million-dollar software purchase. Think about switching from your current in-house counsel or your, your current outside counsel to a new one, or yeah. hiring a strategy consultancy for a big hundreds of thousands of dollars or million-dollar project. The, the loss rate there is about forty to fifty percent, so it's closer to the the lower end of the continuum because it's a significant time investment for the client to go through the evaluation process. So if they know it's they're never going to make a decision, they're less likely to invest the time and head down that path. But nevertheless, it's still pretty big, right? That's, and yeah. Yeah. That's still big. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Big, yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. Now, you make the astute point that indecision and the status quo are not the same thing. That's right. Yeah, Talk to us right. about that. I'd say in sales broadly, and I know in professional services, we think about client development, but this reminds me, I, I won't name them, but I once did a keynote for a management consulting firm and I was like, three quarters of the way through the, I was presenting the challenger sale work, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. And I, I get up there and I'm talking about sales, this and sales people that, and yeah, you know, it's going on and on. The managing partner stands up in front of all the other partners at the partner retreat and says, you have to understand that at our firm, we don't do sales. And I was like thinking, I'm like, why didn't you tell me this before I got on stage? But, but nevertheless, the only thing that came to mind in that moment was Let's just stipulate that there's a mysterious process by which the client's money ends up in your bank account. And can we call it sales for the, night, the remaining 15 minutes? Everyone in the room died laughing. So I, was, I knew I was safe. But look, I know we, we go by lots of different things. Let's just say sales, sales or, or generating client business. What we've always been told in business to business commerce or in sales, you know, client development is that if the client says yes, and then kind of the deal sort of slips away. They go radio silent, they ghost you, they start straddling the fence and getting cold feet. There's only one reason that that happens, and it's because you haven't convinced the client of the value of moving forward with you. Either they believe what they're doing today is good enough, or they, maybe they believe that your solution is not a compelling enough alternative, right. or they don't think switching or, or going to your to your product or your service is a high enough priority for their business. Solving this problem is not a big enough priority. Those are all reasons rooted in what we all are familiar with, which is status quo bias. It's just, eh, you know, why change? And look, it takes a lot to change. I'm not saying it's not an enemy we face every single day in sales and in client development, but that is different from what we found in our research. We actually found that no decision losses were born of two causes. One is, as you said before, the status quo. The customer believes what they're doing today is good enough. Switching is not a top priority for them. What you're talking about is not a big enough improvement over what they have today. So we lose a lot, but that's only 44% of no decision losses. 56% of those losses have nothing to do with the status quo. Instead, they're a function of the customer's indecision, which itself is driven by their fear of failure. As we talk about in the book, they're not worried about missing out on some golden opportunity to buy from you and make things better in their business. They're worried about messing up. They're worried about failing. They're worried about how they will be perceived 
And in today's environment, maybe losing their job for putting their badge on the table and saying, we need to go with this vendor, with this supplier, and having the benefits not come to pass or making some mistake during that process for which they're held personally responsible. So that, it turns out, is the bigger root cause of no decision losses in sales. I, I want to get some language out, just real quick. Sure. So, so a no decision loss is the umbrella for either status quo or customer indecision. That's right. And then really, the, like a, a decision tree, the customer yes. indecision piece, that's a, ironic, isn't it? Is really what you studied at length. You studied yeah. at length, like why customers you know, that have committed to rejecting the status quo, have committed to change, still don't go for. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, so again, that that first finding, as you said, it's it's not no decision equals you failed to beat the status quo. In fact, no yeah. decision equals one of these two things is itself a big eye-opener, I think, for salespeople and for for leaders. Yeah. Because for, for decades, they've been telling their salespeople, the customer is disengaging because you didn't convince them of the value. You didn't create the burning platform. Maybe you didn't dangle that 10% discount that's only good this quarter, right? Whatever reason, you failed to dial up the FOMO, right? But as, as we talk about, what what's keeping them from moving forward is more often, it's not your inability to dial up the FOMO, it's your inability to dial down the FOMO, which is the fear of messing up, right? Yeah. And that, to realize that the status quo is, you know, in a world where we've been told it's your biggest, if not only competitor in sales, is A, not your only competitor, and B, not even the biggest one that you face. Your bigger problem is convincing people that they're not going to get fired from moving forward and doing business with you. I love too, in one of the talks I saw you give online, you talked about how the tendency then is to try to double down on the status quo pitch. Yeah. And that actually makes it worse. So it actually yeah. increases in decision. So it actually tends to even do a worse spiral. I'll talk about that for a second. Yeah. Right? So in the way we did the research for, for listeners who are not familiar, we in March of 2020, when the world of business to business commerce went 100% virtual, so everything started happening on Zoom and Teams and, and other virtual platforms, we recruited several dozen companies and collected, harvested from those companies, two and a half million recorded sales calls from across industries around the world. And we use a machine learning platform to study them. So what we actually found it, it very specific when people get cold feet, when customers get cold feet, when they say, I want this, but they don't quite get to, I bought this, and they get kind of stuck in that no man's mm -hmm. land in between, salespeople do one of three things. The first thing they'll go back and do is try to reconvince the customer of the value that you're going to provide as a partner. You must have missed all that. Did you see how many zeros were on that ROI projection? Did you <laughs> back in the demo? You've clearly you must not get how awesome this is and how great life is going to be if you just say yes and move forward. That's the first attempt. The second attempt would characterize as FUD, right? Create the burning platform, make the customer squirm a bit. Hey, did I mention that we're working with all of your competitors and they're seeing tremendous benefits from working with us? And meanwhile, if you say no, you're going to be stuck with that terrible crappy status quo you were complaining about early on. So we again, we try to give the customer a reason to jump, right? We try to make them squirm and realize the cost of their inaction. In the third attempt, I joked about this before, but is almost invariably a discount attempt, which is designed to like show the customer, yeah, the price is going to go up next quarter, nothing I can do about it. But if you buy now, I can cut you a really good deal. What we find is that those techniques, especially if you're customers who said, I'm dissatisfied with the status quo, I'm convinced we need to move forward. And I'm actually further convinced that you are the partner to do it with. And, and solving this is a big priority for those customers going back and running that, you know, beat the status quo playbook, that FOMO playbook actually backfires more often than it works out. It actually is an 84% probability of creating a negative outcome. In other words, it makes it more likely the customer will end up in no decision land. The deal will be lost to no decision. 
And I think the reason why is pretty simple, which is that customer is scared, but they're not scared, again, about missing out. They're scared about messing up. And you're basically using scare tactics to sell to somebody who's deeply afraid. They're just not afraid of the thing you think they're afraid of. And so it, it comes across in best case scenario is tone yeah. deaf. Worst case scenario, you're using fear and piling it on top of somebody who's already fearful and already scared about what might happen if, if this does not go well. Matt, I, I want to make sure I understand this. I think I hear what you're saying. Listen. Is this phenomenon of indecision an individual thing alone yes. or is it also oh. a corporate one? Because I would think as yeah. I listen to you, there's certain yeah. personality attributes that would lean me towards indecision, but I could also see cultural issues in a corporate yes. environment that would exacerbate that, if you will. Yeah, I know. It's a really great point. So this is almost a, like a vicious self-perpetuating indecision machine that we that we have at work, especially in the current environment. So I think you could argue, Jeff, there are companies that two years ago when, when things were great, company A versus company B and company A might be more aggressive and more of a risk-taking culture and company B might be more conservative where there there is a lot of hemming and hawing and wringing of hands and you know passing the buck and kicking cans down the road and all that stuff. Then you look at the current environment and you say, boy, almost every business is in a keep our powder dry, wait on the sidelines, don't make any big expenditures right now because nobody knows, are we entering a recession? Should we conserve capital, et cetera? And so that has cast kind of this indecisive sort of pall, if you will, over almost every organization. So you've got cultural factors at play within companies, and then you've got systemic kind of macro factors causing uh, indecision. Now, I think what's interesting though, is even within companies, and you kind of hit on this, you could find an individual who you think is decisive and ready to move forward. But as we found in other research, notably in the Challenger customer uh, that we wrote back in 2015, business purchases are rarely made by individuals, especially in large organizations. They're made by committees of, of people. And what we found in the research is that the average buying committee size is about 6.8 stakeholders. That has only gotten bigger. So my former colleagues now at Gardner Group have found that that number is in the mid-teens today. Then you think about Zoom, which I think is the particle accelerator of buying committee growth, right? If we're going to value it <laughs> a significant purchase, like there's no downside to sending the meeting link to everybody and having everyone show up for the demo and ask their questions. Now, what I've done is I've shifted some of the blame to all these other people, right? So we're all culpable. It's not just on me. And in that kind of creates this, again, indecision death spiral, if you will, for deals so you're right. There, there are cultural issues. There are contextual kind of macro issues. And there's also individual, one individual versus another. You could easily have somebody come into the buying committee and say, boy, I feel really good about this. And then everyone else's indecision starts hitting them from all, all sides. And then suddenly they're not so sure, right? So I, I, think you're, I think you're onto something there, Jeff. Wow. Did you guys codify with the types of, of indecision? Like, yeah, like- yeah, absolutely. We did. So we we found that uh, in the research, there are actually three fears of failure, uh, three primary reasons that customers get cold feet. The first one is what we call a valuation problem. That's literally the, where they don't know what to choose. So I'm looking at all of the options you put in front of me, different ways that we could do business together. Then there's everything your competitors offer, right? There's a sea of opportunity and choices out there. Yeah. And I don't know what to choose. Look, even if I decide I want to work with your company, you showed me basic versions, premium versions, you know, platinum versions. You showed me different contract permutations, one year, three year, five year. You showed me different ways to roll out the solution, do business with you. You showed me all the partner integrations you offer. You showed me all the roadmap items you got coming over the next you know, few quarters. I don't know what to choose. In a world where everything looks great, 
the best and safest course of action is to choose nothing, right? Because what you don't want to do is choose the wrong thing and have that then you realize after the contract is signed, that was a mistake. So that's a valuation problem. The second one we call lack of information, which is where the customer feels like they just haven't done quite enough research to be a smart buyer. And what they're trying to avoid is the a situation in which they're surprised in a bad way after the contract, the ink is dry on the contract and we start doing business together. Then we find out, oh, you guys can't help us with this, or your technology doesn't integrate with that. And had we just done a little bit more research, we would have known that before we signed the agreement. And it's usually somebody's job to lead that exploration. And that person has egg on their face for not having done left no stone unturned, if you will. Yeah. The last one we call outcome uncertainty. This is where the customer feels like they're not going to get what they pay for. Not literally that you'll take their money and run, though that may be true of some businesses, but rather that they won't see the full benefit from the purchase. You know, We built the business case on a 5X ROI. If this comes in at three, four X, I'm going to be hauled into the CFO's office and, and I'm not worried about having egg on my face. I'm worried about getting fired for that because in today's environment, people get fired for putting their badge on the table, plunking down a lot of money and in, in their cash and their political chips to push for a big transformative purchase. And look, every vendor out there is selling transformation. That's exciting, but transformation you know, breeds a lot of indecision because people start to sweat. Are we actually going to get the benefits here? Or is this going to go sideways? And then you know, it's my name that's attached to that decision. Matt, does I think I know the answer to this one too. <laughs> You're the expert. Does that mean that brand is the most vital asset in these yeah, situations? Like yeah. Or or is it a, a nobody ever got fired from buying from IBM kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, this came up the other day. I was I was hosting a dinner for a big software vendor. Actually, I won't mention them by name, but somebody asked this and said, you know, we're all here. We've been invited to this dinner by We'll call Macme Software. That's not their name. We were invited to this there by, but they're the 800 pound girl in this market. Clearly, doing business with them, it feels safer, right? It feels like you're the, either in the top of the magic quadrant, the Gardner magic quadrant. They're the safe choice. It is the old nobody got fired from buying from IBM. What I, I said was uh, two things. One, yes, being a startup player with little track record of success brings a lot more risk. And, and with an indecisive customer, with a company that might struggle with taking risk and taking making those risky decisions in the current environment, it's a tough place to be. This is why I think a lot of SaaS businesses, these early stage companies are struggling right now, right? Because they're kind of coming in and they need people to take a bit of a leap of faith. This is a tough environment to get people to do that. But I don't think that means that the big players, by the way, all of whom are doing huge rounds of layoffs right now, okay. are safe. And I think part of the reason is that those companies have been trying to push for bigger transformative purchases. They they have long since graduated from selling simple onesie, twosie products to now selling multi-million dollar, multi-year, enterprise-wide solutions to their clients. So they may have traded the lack of brand reputation for a new problem, which is uh, choice overload, uh, too much information. And as they push up the value chain for those bigger dollar value deals, that outcome uncertainty, you know, it's, look, it's one thing to spend $10,000 of your company's money to try something. It's another thing to you know, again, put your badge on the table and lobby for a $5 million, $10 million purchase and have that assigned to you. And that, you know, if this doesn't, benefits don't come to pass, there's one person like who shoulders most of the blame is the person who signed off on this and who put their badge on the table and said, we need to move forward with this vendor. So I think those big brands, and it was funny at this dinner, we had executives from that company and they said, absolutely, we're losing to no decision all the time because we're selling really big transformative deals to our customers and in this environment, it's way safer for them to just delay, right? Get more life out of their current solution, kick the can down the road, 
let's pick up the conversation next year. Obviously, that's not tenable for them from a sales standpoint, but that's what they're hearing from their customers. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. You know, it's funny, Matt, as you're talking, I'm kind of like tying different threads together. Well, the, the essence of my question is, this a new problem or is it is it an old yeah. problem? But maybe the real question is, is it getting worse? Because you reference yeah. the Gardner work and your work cool. from the Challenger customer and buying committees, right? So if you go from six to 12 decision makers in a buying process, you got to think just conceptually that that would increase in decision. Yeah, I think it does. And I think what I would say is, I think on the one hand, indecision was a problem that we were, and I jokingly said before we started the the show and the conversation that it's a little bit like that telescope that shot like a million miles past the moon, which is now showing pictures of the greater universe and galaxy that we've never seen before. But that stuff was always there. It was been there for billions of years. We just never had the technology to find it. On the one hand, I think indecisions like that. Again, we use a very modern approach using two and a half million sales calls and machine learning. So I think we discovered something that was was there, but we never had the technology to find it before. But at the same time, I think it's getting a lot worse. You think about the things that drive indecision. Too many choices, too much information, too much risk. It's well, you know, it's too expensive, right? It's too much risk. They're in almost every business, we're offering more and more choice to our customers. Like you think about firms or their buying capabilities or getting into new markets, they're it's more and more and more. If you talk to firm leaders, they're all about how do we sell, like we, we're trying to be one fill in the blank company, right? We're trying to sell the breadth of our capabilities. We want to turn every customer, every client into a client of every practice or every part of our business, every part of our solution. So we're trying to bring more to our customers. Information. You know, there's more information about us, our competitors and our market today than there was yesterday. And tomorrow, there's going to be orders of magnitude more than there is today, which makes it impossible for a customer to consume it all but exacerbates the likelihood that they'll be get wrapped around the axle in analysis paralysis because they want to be an expert, right? They don't feel like they can move forward until they consume more of that content. And then that outcome uncertainty, it's we're pushing up the value chain. We want to sell more bigger deals, stickier deals because that's good business for us. It's more profitable. It's harder to dislodge us when we're fully embedded in the client organization. But you know, if you're not selling a product that's, you know, if you're not selling K-cups for the coffee maker or toner cartridges for the printer, you're selling a really transformative thing to your customer that exacerbates their sweating the God. the likelihood that they'll actually get all the benefits. So I think in many respects it's getting worse. I think it's from some point of view, I would argue that the current economy is almost a red herring. I think everyone's focused on indecision right now, but I think even you know, fast forward five, 10 years from now, this is still going to be a really big problem in sales yeah. and in business, business interactions in general. And I think we'll see a momentary spike because of the downturn. But I think we're on a secular increase upward if we don't do something about it. Yeah. It almost makes it seem like the ability for an organization to make a decision and move forward on it and achieve an outcome would be a competitive advantage in this environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Funny. it's funny. So we found in the research uh, indecision is very widespread. The funny thing is if you ask your customers, you ask your clients, how many of you think you're decisive leaders or managers? 100% of them say yes, right? But the data tells a very different story. We found that decisiveness is actually the exception, not the rule. Only 13% of the opportunities we studied were with customers who were not encumbered by the fear of failure. They were purely rational, very focused on you know the numbers of it, whether this 
objectively made sense for their organization and not worried about if it made sense, then we push forward. And if it didn't, we don't. They were unencumbered by fear of failure, the decisive people. 87% of the opportunities were with customers who are either moderately or highly indecisive. Wow. And so it's it's everywhere. And so I think to your, to your point, Jeff, yeah, if you're one of those companies that can kind of stick and move and make decisions and, and do so in, in a rational way, I think that is an advantage. And it's Certainly rare, according to our analysis. And and you said that thir- you told us that thirteen percent doesn't change as you go up and down the organization. So yeah, so it's not that's like right. It, um, it, it it gets bigger at the C C suite. So this is actually not in the book, but we we found that there's no correlation between level of indecision and seniority. And I think that's really troubling finding for partners, for salespeople, people out there trying to drive business, because what it tells you is. You can fight tooth and nail to get in with the GC or get in with the CFO or get in with the CIO or the, the business leader, CEO even. And there is no guarantee that that individual isn't also encumbered by fear of failure. I'm worried about, you know, if I'm the, I'm the CFO, I'm worried about what the CEO is going to think of me. I'm worried about the next board meeting, right? Or what investors yeah. will think of me. You still sweat that perception and that fear of failure, even if you're at a quite senior level. That's a troubling place to be for sure, to, to know that no matter where you go in the organization, you have a high probability of dealing with somebody despite their lofty title and their big desk and corner office that could be encumbered by fear of failure and, and not likely to make a decision. Yeah, it makes me think that that you know, traditional sales acronym of BANT needs another yeah. letter on it. <laughs> like an I on the end. Shandy. Yeah. Yeah, Banty. That's a good ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible acronym. <laughs> I love it. I want to spend some time with Matt on the solution. So what do we do about this? You know, so so yeah. Talk to yeah. us about that because that, that's the essence of Jolt now. And I want you right. to get us to get into that. You and I talked about this as well that, you know, we, well, we, we didn't create this, right? We found that top salespeople had figured this out on, on yeah. their own, much like in the challenger sale. We figured out that top salespeople were doing something different. And we just gave language to it. And the same was true in the Jolt effect. Jolt is actually an acronym and it stands for the four behaviors that we found high performers had figured out as a way to instill confidence and get that customer to move forward, overcome that fear of failure, that indecisiveness. J is about judging the level of indecision. How do we assess kind of where where we stand with this opportunity? How indecisive is this individual I'm working with? And how likely are we to get this deal across the finish line or is our time better spent elsewhere? O is about offering your recommendations. So remember, we talked about when there's a, a sea of options, the safest choice is to not pick any of them and stay on the sidelines. Offering your recommendations is all about Shifting the blame from the decider to the recommender and how do best salespeople actually guide the customer towards a decision and give them some confidence that they're making a good decision. Forget about all this other stuff. You don't need that right now. What you need is this and here's why. And you're in good hands with me recommending that course of action for you. The L is about limiting the exploration. So this deals with this problem of information overload. How do we get the customer to stop trying to be an expert themselves, which they're never going to be, and get them to trust us as their expert? Uh, There's two pieces to that. One is they probably don't trust you, and two is they probably don't see you as an expert. So we've got to overcome those, those two things, right? And then the T is about taking risk off the table. So this deals with that outcome uncertainty problem that as the price tag and the riskiness and the transformative potential of this purchase goes up and up and up, customers really start to get nervous about seeing the benefits. And if it, they don't see them, they're going to be the ones called to the mat by the CFO or by by their boss. And why didn't we capture these benefits? So we got to create a safety net. We got to make that client feel like we've got their back. 
They're not going to look like a fool. They're going to look like a hero. We've done this before. We're going to roadmap from where we are from signature to value. And we know exactly what needs to happen. And we we're ready to catch you if things start to go sideways and start to slip. Those are the four behaviors. And obviously in the book, we go into a lot more detail about how to do these things. And also yeah. around each of them, you know, what are the things that most salespeople tend to do? And what have high performers figured out is a, what we often find the most people go left and high performers go right. You know, they, they take a slightly different tack yeah. uh, when faced with these situations. I guess I'm curious that how in the world did you uncover the four behaviors, you know, from these 2.5 yeah. million, da- you know, point data points or yeah, we, so data we, points, you know, hour long interactions. So there's a lot of social science around the markers of indecisiveness. Indeci- indecision manifests as a series of emotions, confusion, frustration, hesitancy, uncertainty, skepticism in different combinations. And so what we did was we taught the machine to identify. So if you think for a moment about any one of those, confusion, for instance, we could come up with likely hundreds of ways that in the English language alone, one could express confusion. Turns out there are way more than that. And so what you've got to do to get a machine to spot that And that is one of like 20 different emotions we are tracking as indicators of indecision. There are literally thousands of permutations. And to teach a machine to spot it, you've got to teach them what it sounds like. And then when you come across things that are kind of like that, but actually are different. So simple example that my kids like is I say, that's bad. Like when I was growing up, like that could mean that's actually bad or that's actually really cool. You know, it's a, and so you've got to be able to tell the difference. You got to train the machine learning to understand the difference between real confusion and false positive confusion. Then you train the machine to find those things. We find those emotions in different quantities. That allows us to say, okay, these are the the decisive customers, the moderately indecisive, and the deeply indecisive. When you're looking at behaviors, similar thing. We tested a lot of the behaviors that salespeople have been taught for many, many years, needs diagnosis, consensus building, negotiation, so the classic solution selling techniques, a lot of the things from the challenger research, and then a bunch of hypotheses we had about, well, if the conventional wisdom is this, what if high performers did the opposite? And so we created similar categories to try to spot those behaviors and calls. We built a model that was 8,300 variables, all told. Our data science team had a proprietary math solver because we were breaking all the off-the-shelf you know, statistical analysis packages. So they built their own software to do analytics on it. And we were looking at not just what variables hit, but when in the conversation they happen, with sequences, permutation, timing, all these sorts of things. And that allowed us ultimately, from this massive amount of data, to come out and say, there's basically four big things happening here. High performers do this, not that, this, not that, you know, and, and figure yeah. out what do most people do? What do they do? And then, you know, it was interesting. I wouldn't even say that was that. I think that sounds hard. That wasn't even the hard part. The hard part was trying to figure out why, you know, why would high performers not just ask customers what they want, but tell them what they should buy? But there's a lot of, well, it turns out there's a lot of social science behind that. And that's what, what customers respond well to is when an expert guides them to a decision and doesn't just leave it up to them. And then we sit back and we say, boy, I remember that when I was remodeling my kitchen or when I was trying to buy a new car or trying to pick out a home to buy, right? And working with a realtor. I remember that the ones who delivered the most value were the ones who gave me that guidance. And so we can we can see ourselves in that, but there's a lot of social science as to why these things work that I think sales, most salespeople were unfamiliar with. So we didn't just do this big math problem, if you will, but we read probably 30 or 40 years of cognitive psychology journal articles, which by the way, I won't wish on any of your listeners because they're extremely boring, but there's some gold in there in some real explanation, uh, some of it decades old, rooted in behavioral economics, human psychology, why people are predictably irrational, as Dan Ariely would say, explaining why high performers have figured out 
how to push people into, no, say push is the wrong word, but how to get them from, I want this to yeah. I bought this from intent to action in a way that average performers have struggled with. Yeah. It's funny as you were talking, Jeff, I can't remember whose research it was. I mean, if it, Blair Enns is the one who I think we talked yeah. about it with and it's, and it's the, the research was basically there's a direct relationship between confidence of the seller and deal value. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. everything you talk about in Joel is all about confidence. You know, you yeah. can, you know, a high performer is extremely confident in order to yeah. do those four things, which I think is what's so cool about them is you almost, because that, the notion of confidence is such a vague idea. Yes. And, yeah. And, but now you're saying, okay, well, but a confident seller is actually doing these four things. Yes. They, they're, they are confident enough to do those things. And when I can do those things, it makes you more confident as a buyer. So you're, you're right. I'll give you another example here. We, you know, I talked about before, you get the customer to stop trying to consume and consume and consume content yeah. and become an expert. You got to get them to trust you as an expert. But the problem is most salespeople are not seen as trustworthy guides uh, during this journey. The, the customer shows up before you even say hello and make introductions and they believe it is a, it's a battle. You are going to try to oversell me. You're going to try to hide the dirty laundry. You're going to try to sell me more than I need. Your job is to maximize deal value. My job is to make a good decision on behalf of, of my team, on behalf of my company, et cetera. And so we are, there's this awkward dynamic. It's the kind of uh, the principal agent problem. And what best salespeople do. So again, we always talk about, we got to build up that trust. What we found is when you look at conversations, the way it happens is it happens early in the sale when the salesperson tells the customer what they shouldn't buy. So, you know, Jeff, I, I put a lot in front of you and I, I know you're looking at the premium version of our solution. I got to tell you, I think the basic version is going to be just fine for you and your organization. We can always expand into the premium version later, but you know what? Don't spend your scarce resource, especially right now on that. I just don't, I think you're going to be buying too much. You don't need a thousand seat licenses. Let's start with a hundred and let's, let's prove it out and let's expand from there. Or even get this, certain times high performers will confidently, I think to your, your point, Jay, they will tell the customer, you know what? I'd love to bring you on as a client. Nothing would make me happier. But based on what you're looking for, we're actually not the best in the market at that. I think you should actually call those guys over there. Yeah. That, that takes a lot of confidence to do that. But when you do those things, you go from this vague notion of trust, right? Which you talk about a lot, to very concrete, you are building a bucket of goodwill and you're teaching your customer, my job is not to oversell you and to put one over on you. My job is to help get you to a great decision. A bucket of trust that you can then cash in later when it's time to tell your customer, you don't need a third reference call. I don't think that's going to teach you anything you haven't already learned. Let me be a good steward of your time and let's find out a better way to answer your questions and address your concerns. So we are dangerously close to losing you. I, I could talk to you for another hour and a half, but Jeff, I know you had one burning question at the open of this. You're like, I really want to ask, so I want you to do that because I think it's an important question before before Matt runs away. Yeah, let's uh, <laughs> not runs away. I'm but, not going to yeah. run. I, I, yeah. I'm getting forced onto another call. That's the wrong I'd stay I, with you guys all day too. Well, you, well, you should do it again. Yeah, I have, I have two questions for you. The first one is single word answer. Ben. I think I already know the answer. And then the second one, you tell us as much as you want to know or want us to know. Uh, sure. The first one is, is the Challenger sale still relevant? I would say yes. More than one word. <laughs> why I say that. So, <laughs> I mean, this is like uh, back to school where you remember when Rodney Dangerfield takes the exam at the end and the professor's like, I've got one question in 38 parts. Right so here's what I would tell you. is I think if you look at Challenger, Challenger dealt with the problem of customers learning on their own. That is a problem that a genie that can't be put back in the bottle Today's customers are pretty far down the purchase path before they ever pick up the phone and talk to a vendor or a, a, a firm to do business with. 
They've already done a lot of research, put salespeople in a bad spot. Again, nobody's unplugging the internet. There's there's more and more content today. Uh, customers are much more likely to do that. Challenger customer dealt with the increase in buying committee size. And even as after we wrote the book and now we look today, it's almost doubled from when we wrote the book. Jolt deals with this problem of indecision, which again, we talked about earlier, I think is only going to get worse. Again, genies that can't be put back in the bottle. So I think for that reason alone, the solution is still very relevant. Then the other thing I'll tell you is whether you are a challenger shop or you subscribe to a different sales methodology, the one thing I tell you is every sales methodology out there is predicated on beating the status quo, demonstrating the value and getting the customer to stop doing more of the same and start moving forward in a different way with yeah. you as a partner. That is the enemy that every single sales methodology is thoroughly trained on or focused on. Jolt is different. Jolt is an overlay. It's a second playbook we need. It's not saying stop doing challenger. What it's saying is be world-class at that because if you don't beat the status quo, you're never selling anything. Indecision is a secondary problem. But even after doing that, now the new problem is you've got to overcome indecision, instill that confidence that the customer's making a great decision. They're working with a subject matter expert that they trust, the salesperson. And I feel like I've got a safety net. I'm going to look like a hero, not like a fool for making this decision. That's the jolt effect. So it attaches or kind of sits on top of, if you will, whatever your current methodology is, whether that's challenger or, or any other. Yeah. Excellent. I, you know, it's that funny, was a much better quick. answer than yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, there's this whole notion of the reassuring intent in the, in the later stage of the sale. And I think what Jolt has done, it's basically blown open that simple phrase that is, shows up in all kinds of sales training, but it's actually pretty hollow most of the time. Like, you just got to reassure yeah. intent. Here's a couple of yeah. tricks. Yeah, that's right. So, all right. Yeah. so you had a second question though, Jeff, and we are like, literally, we have two minutes. So, so it's, I don't know, right, I, I want to maximize tight. our two minutes. <laughs> Keep it tight is exactly right. If our listeners want to find out more about you and Jolt Effect, where do they go? Yeah. So first thing, I, I always love being connected with folks who've, who've heard me on different podcasts. So send me a LinkedIn invite, tell me you heard me on the show and, and you'd like to, maybe you have a follow-up question, maybe you just want to be connected. Let's let's do it. The other thing, if you're interested in more about the Jolt Effect, go to joltefact.com. We've got a lot of free tools, coaching tools, other uh, diagnostic tools you can download. And then we offer a lot of support on the back end if you want to head down that that journey yourself or with your organization. And buy the book. Yeah, buy the book, of course. Buy the yeah, book, right? Man, the publisher yeah. will be happy. Go buy the book. Absolutely. Yes. Go buy the book. No, I, I, I'm really excited about it. It was such a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, yeah it was great to be with you guys. Can we commit you to come back? I'll I'll come back for sure. If you guys will have me, I'll be back. Right. I'm not even going to um, tease what you're working on now that yeah. we're going to have you back for because I think our listeners are going to love it because it's right in their wheelhouse. So we'll have you back here soon and looking forward to digging into your next layer of research, which is super interesting as well. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh.